study on the very important doctrine of assurance. And last session, yesterday evening, we introduced the topic and we defined it. And just by way of reminder, we borrowed author Joel Beakey's definition. Assurance of faith is the conviction that one belongs to Christ through faith. Uh, we also noted Sinclair Ferguson's definition, the conscious confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. So it is the personal confidence we have that we indeed have experienced the benefits of the gospel in a saving way. Now, eventually, we're going to look at where, uh, where legitimate assurance comes from as we examine our lives in light of Scripture. But before we do that, we are first looking at common reasons why we might lack biblical assurance. And these reasons are not exhaustive, but just some of the more common ones that we might experience. And last night, we started with the one that requires the most explanation because it serves as the theological foundation of our assurance, and that is the gospel. And therefore, one reason why we might lack assurance is gospel confusion, just bad gospel theology. A few of the areas that we covered, when our faith tends to be more in our faith than it is in Christ, we're going to struggle with assurance. Also, misunderstanding the doctrine of justification will cause us to struggle with assurance because we will think that our, our righteousness ebb and flows depending on how we're feeling, depending on how we think God is thinking about us any particular day. Another area of gospel confusion is the denial of eternal security and God's sovereignty in salvation. Well, if we're confused about those things and we're going to think, yeah, it's all about faith and I can have the real thing, but tomorrow I could wake up and it could be gone. I could lose my faith and my salvation, so I could never be assured of my salvation if that were the case. Well, this morning, as I said last night, we're going to get much more practical now as we cover several more reasons why we might lack biblical assurance. So just continuing our outline from last session, let's move on now to a second reason we might lack assurance, a misunderstanding of God's character, or we could even say an unbalanced view of the character of God. Just to begin to think about this one, turn over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 31. And as I read this, I want you to consider what jumps out to you. What is it that your mind just instinctively emphasizes in this passage? Matthew 12, verse 31. Jesus says, Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The person with this tendency to misunderstand the character of God or have an unbalanced view, all they hear in that passage is a terrifying warning. It may even be that every time they come across that passage, their immediate and only response is, that could be me. H have I committed that 
unpardonable sin. Now, to clarify, the problem isn't that we see the warning and we examine ourselves and we ask ourselves the question. That's not the problem. The problem is, if we're in this category, we don't pay hardly any attention to verse 31. Did you focus on that as much as the other one? Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. But the person with this tendency will tend to overemphasize the warning passages and passages that speak about wrath and anger and, and judgment, but they do so to the neglect of embracing and believing the encouraging parts of Scripture, the encouraging truths about God's character. And this could be a reaction to an error in the greater church today, which reduces God down to a God of only mercy and love, a God who winks at sin, who doesn't care anything about holiness and justice. But regardless of the reason why we do it, we have to cultivate a biblical balance of God's character, believing with equal weight, yes, he is righteous, he is holy, he is a judge, but at the same time, he is full of compassion. He's slow to anger, gracious, delights in showing mercy to those who fear him and trust him. The person with this tendency may even have difficulty accepting the concept of forgiveness, perhaps being so prone to being affected by their guilt that they feel, I'm just too bad, I'm too ashamed to ever be forgiven by a holy God. And that's understandable. We can certainly understand why we would struggle with this. Why is that? Well, first, we have a conscience, and conscience speaks against forgiveness. The only thing our conscience knows is guilt and conviction. It tells you whether or not you're guilty. Yeah, you may feel nothing. You may even feel good when you're not guilty, but, but you don't equate that with God's grace and mercy. But what we might have a tendency to do is conclude what I feel in response to my sin, whatever my conscience is doing when it's condemning me, that's what God is like. And what you're doing is you're allowing your conscience to basically be a form of revelation from God, though you would never, you would never consciously say that. You would never say, God is speaking to me right now in my conscience, but that's sometimes how we function when we operate like this. So all you feel is guilt and condemnation, and you conclude, okay, that's how God views me right now. That's how God views me all the time. On top of that, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, as he's referred to in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Satan does all he can to obscure the love and graciousness of God in the life of the believer. And so with each of these tendencies, we're going we're gonna to ask ourselves, how do we shepherd our own hearts, if this is true of us, if we're in this category, what do we do? Well, one thing that would surely be helpful is we need to spend more time meditating on God's love, His grace, His mercy, His faithfulness. And we're obviously not talking about doing that so we can have a license to sin and presume upon His grace. Rather, we're talking about focusing on God's grace and His love and His kindness because we're not believing those things. We read right over them. We skip right to the scary parts of Scripture, and we don't balance them out with the encouraging parts. Turn over to Romans 8. I know we spent some time there yesterday evening, but we're going to go a little further ahead. Romans 8 is, is a very 
helpful passage if you find yourself struggling with this tendency. Pick it up in Romans 8, verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? For those of you with this tendency, you may habitually believe the exact opposite of that verse. Far from being for me, God always feels like he's against me. And the Apostle Paul knows we're going to have this tendency at times, and so he not only states the truth in verse 31, he then proves it in verse 32. Let me give you a proof of this. He who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God wanted to demonstrate his love, his favor, his grace to you, what better way could there be than delivering his own beloved and unique son over to death to make atonement for your sins? If God was against you, as you're tempted to believe, if all he wanted to do was judge you and condemn you, you have to ask yourself, why would he reveal himself to me? Why would he give me instructions on how to be saved? Why reveal the remedy in Christ Jesus? Why would he put me in a church and, and, and bring me to a camp like this to hear his word? Pastor and hymn writer John Newton, who I'll turn to several times this morning, Listen to what he said as it relates to this. He uses Noah and the ark as an example. He writes this, We read that Noah, being warned of God, prepared an ark. The Lord condescended to give very particular directions for building the ark. When it was finished and the flood was approaching, Noah entered. And you remember the text says, The Lord himself shut him in. Now, suppose the story of Noah and the ark ended this way. And it came to pass after these things. The ark was dashed to pieces in the flood, and Noah and his family all perished. How would this event have astonished us? What? Did the Lord appoint the ark, command Noah to go into it, shut him in carefully, just to have Noah perish at last? Did not the Lord mean to save him? Did he not know how to save him? And then Newton writes this, our doubts and unbelief are founded upon a supposition no less absurd and impossible than that I have mentioned. Did Jesus die for sinners? Did he not incline my heart to respond to his drawing of me? Did he open the door of his mercy and invite me to draw near only to shut it against me when I came? Impossible. That's a good example of how to shepherd your heart when you have this, this tendency to feel like God is against me. All I feel is guilt and condemnation and God's always angry and he's only a judge and he's only full of wrath and there's no love, there's no graciousness, there's no mercy. That brings us to a third reason why we might lack assurance. And this one is very similar to the one we just covered. They often go hand in hand in the same person. And I want to develop this one. This is the one I mentioned yesterday was very common in pastoral ministry, at least in my experience. So this third reason is this. Some Christians lack assurance because of their natural temperament, how they're wired, their, personal, their, their personality. Doubters, pessimists, 
those who have a negative outlook, outlook in life, also many introverts fall into this category. Because introverts, what's the beginning of the word? Intro. They're always thinking inward, constantly engaging in introspection, constantly analyzing themselves. Though they very well may fear God and be saved, uh, their Christian life is characterized by this thought, God's favor is not with me. Yes, it's with other Christians who are just much better Christians than me, more faithful than me, but for the most part, God is just frustrated with me and disappointed by me, and, and and I'm really just a failure. Always questioning whether they are among the elect, whether they're on the path of apostasy, whether they're that, that terrible condition described in those frightening passages in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Fearing often that the remaining sin that they know is in their life and in their heart, it's eventually going to get the best of me. I know it. Every time the Lord's Supper comes around, always questioning, there's no way I should take of that. No, I mean, I had this thought this week, or I had this sin. There's no way I should take the Lord's Supper. Those with this tendency will reason every evidence of God's grace in their lives into something that they have manufactured themselves in their flesh. Constantly analyzing their feelings and their motives, but never really getting any clarity on those things. Rather, just plunging themselves into further and further depths of doubt and despair. If that describes you, how do you shepherd your heart? What do you do with that? First of all, when it comes to thinking about evidences of God's grace in your life and the tendency to reason those things away, to just assume, no, I'm manufacturing that. I'm doing that on my own willpower, my own strength. You've got to ask yourself questions like these. Since you came to faith, whenever it is that you think you became a Christian, you have either sustained and preserved yourself or the Lord's favor has been with you. And from what you know about your heart, especially those of you who are always thinking inward and always focusing on the evil inside, why would you think that you would be the cause of your devotion to God's people? Your appetite for God's word, your ability to understand and grasp the significance of God's word, your persevering faith through trial, your service to others. Why would you be the cause and not God's grace actively working in your life? By the way, if you really believe you're just manufacturing all these things in your Christian experience, this is a question I think is helpful to to ask people when they say, yeah, every, everything that I'm doing, it's, I'm not doing it in hypocrisy that I know of. I just think that I'm manufacturing in my flesh. I think it's fake. You know, reading the scriptures, praying, serving God's people, meeting with God's people to worship on the Lord's day. If you really believe your entire Christian life is just manufactured in the flesh, just stop doing those things. Why don't you stop? Now, here's what the believer is saying right now. No, I would never stop. I'm never going to stop doing those things. I have to be in the Word of God. I have to be around the people of God. I love the people of God. Where'd that come from? You? You manufactured that. That longing, that affectionate longing for God and the people of God, that appetite for the Word of God. You did that? 
Is that not the evidence that God has put the fear of him in your heart to not turn away from him, as we saw in Jeremiah 32 last night? But you say, I'm constantly in self-examination mode. I just basically live in introspection. I don't go through seasons of it. I just live in introspection. That's all I do. How do I, how do I think about that? Well, self-examination is something that we're commanded to do in the New Testament. Look over at 2 Corinthians 13.5 just for a moment. This is probably the, one of the clearest places to see it. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 13.5, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. All right, so how can we be in error if we're constantly examining ourselves? Isn't that obedience to what Paul says here? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Notice that again. Examine yourselves. That should lead to what? A recognition about yourself. It should lead to an accurate assessment, either that Jesus Christ is in me or I failed the test. In other words, the key is biblical self-examination. How do you know when you're being obedient to that verse? It's producing clarity. It's producing clarity. Here's what Joel Beakey suggests. A scripture-guided self-examination that arrives at a conclusion, whether positive or negative, is helpful. If it leads to identifying, yeah, that's good fruit. That's fruit of God's grace. Or it leads to identifying, that's rotten fruit. I need to repent of that. If it leads to an accurate assessment of oneself, According to Scripture, it's helpful. It's profitable. But for those with this particular tendency, what they call introspection and self-examination most of the time results in what? Not clarity, not an actual assessment, but further confusion and even condemnation. And what you have to recognize is neither of those are the ministry of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God in the life of the believer does not have a ministry of confusion or a ministry of condemnation. Listen to what Pastor H.B. Charles said. It's a, a very memorable way to put it. He writes, It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. Now, just in case you want that, I'll, I'll repeat it. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. How does that relate to what we're talking about? When the Spirit of God is involved in your self-examination, it's going to be driven by the Word of God, specific passages and principles in Scripture, not your feelings, not your inner speculations that go nowhere, and the Spirit is going to be producing clarity to the end that you become more like Christ. Confusion and condemnation is not his agenda. 
in the life of the believer. All right, so if your introspection, your self-examination, if it's not bringing clarity, it just plunges you into this cycle of confusion and despair over and over, you've got to consider you're actually not examining yourself the way you're supposed to in Scripture. You're doing something much different. What are you doing? What might that something different be? Well, for some, we are guilty of an idolatry of certainty when it comes to this area. What is an idol? When you hear that word, what is an idol? It's something that exercises inescapable influence, a controlling, dominating influence in our lives. Anything other than the Lord that is exercising a controlling, dominating influence in my life, that's an idol. And sometimes we make assurance an idol. How do we do that? We constantly are looking inward, examining feelings, examining affections, and we're grasping for a kind of certainty that God has not promised we can have. In fact, it's impossible for us to have. It's what I call an exhaustive clarity we're after, an exhaustive certainty and clarity about my feelings, my motives, why am I after it? Because I want absolute assurance I belong to him, absolute assurance that my faith and my good deeds in the Christian life are without any mixture of sin or impure motives. And once I can have that absolute assurance, that exhaustive clarity, then I can finally know I'm a true child of God. Now, if you're confused by that, let me, let me try to illustrate what this looks like practically. This perilous cycle of second-guessing your motives over and over in everything you say and do. Here's what it looks like. Let's say you decide to meet a need in the life of someone. And later on that day or week, you think this. Yeah, I met the need, but maybe I did that more for my own glory than God's glory. Maybe I wanted that person to think much of me or be impressed with me. Maybe I did it to feed self-significance. Maybe I did it to feed self-righteousness. Or another example. Yeah, I told that person I loved them and I'll be praying for them. But do I really love them? Do I really love them the way I'm called to? Can I really say that without being deceitful? Because I don't love them the way I'm, I'm actually called to, but I'm loving them in some sense. And, and you just go over and over like that, back and forth in your mind. By the way, have you noticed that for those of you who do this, you never arrive at that absolute certainty that you're grasping for? You never get there. You never arrive at the clarity you're seeking. You can evaluate your actions and motives over and over, but you're never going to get to a point where you know for sure, oh yeah, my actions were totally pure without any mixed motive. That was indeed a godly thing to say and do. Why can you never get to that point? Well, it's really simple. You're not God. You're not God. Only God has what? Exhaustive knowledge, omniscience. You're, you're not omniscient. You're not all-knowing. But, but some of us, like, we, we can, we act like we can be omniscient when it comes to searching the depths of our own hearts and finding out everything that's, that's in there. Just like we talked about yesterday, there's a difference between saving faith and perfect faith. There's also a difference between knowing something truly 
and knowing something exhaustively. The first type of knowing we can and should have. We can know something truly. The second type we can never have. You're never going to know it exhaustively. That type of knowledge and clarity you're after, you can never possibly attain. Now, let me, let me prove that to you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. All right, so here, here is the Apostle Paul. I assume everyone in here would say he's a mature Christian. All right, so it's not like you're going to, we're going to attain to a level beyond the Apostle Paul. So I want you to look at how a godly, mature Christian thinks about these matters. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court... That's, that's a key word there, human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. What he's not saying there is, I don't ever examine in the way that the Christian is supposed to, like in a 2 Corinthians 13.5 manner. He's not saying that. He's talking about, I don't examine myself in a way that assumes I can have exhaustive clarity and render a decisive judgment. How do we know that? Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. So he is evaluating himself. You see that? He is evaluating himself according to Scripture. He has arrived at a verdict. I am not condemned. I've dealt with everything in my life. I have a clean conscience before the Lord. But that's not ultimately decisive. Notice what he goes on to say. Yet I am not by this acquitted. So you see that tension that comes out there? Even when my conscience is clean... I can go as far as a human being can go in examining myself, but it doesn't mean I have exhaustive clarity that leads to, be, leads to a verdict that's absolutely reliable. My verdict is not flowing from omniscience, and therefore what? It's human. It's limited. Notice the end of verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. That is to say, the ultimate and decisive examination is reserved for the Lord alone because he can do what we try to do, but we can't do. Verse 5, what can he do? Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Now notice, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So you see that? We, we can't evaluate our motives and say, I know with absolute certainty before the Lord that was without any mixture of impure motives or, or that thought or that deed was, was without any thought of my own glory. We could never get to that point this side of eternity where we know that for sure. But what, what can we do? We go as far as Paul goes. We do examine ourselves. We do get to a point where I have a clean conscience. I've dealt with everything I know of before the Lord. As far as I know, I'm living in faithfulness before him. But because of my human limitations, I have to leave room for the Lord to reveal otherwise. How does he do that, by the way? How do, how do we ever get clarity on that? Well, for some things in our lives, we won't get clarity until the judgment seat of Christ. 
when he does this very thing in verse 5. He shines a light on our motives for why we did what we did in the Christian life. But there are times in our lives here and now where we can uncover a motive that was not godly. But it doesn't come through the perilous cycle of second-guessing ourselves and just looking inward and thinking, well, what if this? What if that? What if this? No, how does it come? It comes as God providentially arranges tests in our lives. These tests are opportunities for us to see what am I trusting in when I'm not sure, or why am I doing the things I am doing? For instance, how do I know if when I served, I used my gift to build up the body in the church, how do I know if that was for my glory or the Lord's glory? Well, unless you're consciously doing it for your own glory, you may not know in the moment. But how can you get clarity? Well, are you only willing to serve in areas where you get noticed, where you get praised? Are you devastated when you're left out of recognition? If you served alongside four other people and all four of them got recognized and you didn't get recognized, does that devastate you? Does, does that bother you? Now you're seeing how that motive was getting exposed. Now you know, okay, I was in it more for myself. I wanted praise. I wanted recognition. But if you were able to do that, the four other people got recognized. You didn't. You were left in obscurity and you rejoice and you delight in the Lord because the need was met. You got to use your gift to build up the body. You didn't get any human praise or recognition, and you find joy in that. Well, that, now you know, as far as you can know this side of eternity, you were doing that for the Lord. You were doing that in faith and obedience. So that's an example of how you get clarity with regard to your motives, often not in the moment, often not in overanalyzing why I'm doing what I'm doing, but it's as the Lord brings circumstances and tests into our lives to expose those things. Robert Murray McShane advised that though self-examination is essential, we should take 10 looks at Christ for every one look we take inside ourselves. And for the person in this category with that analytical spirit, that doubting negative spirit, add 20 to that, add 30. <laughs> for every one look inside, take 20, take 30 looks at Christ. Why is that? Because the type of introspection that you're engaging in is often Christless and crossless. What, what do I mean by that? It's Christless because you never think of the righteousness of Christ. That is your right standing before God. And it's crossless because you don't take your guilt and condemnation to the cross. You just wallow in self-pity and guilt. What does it look like to take what you see in your self-examination, your guilt, your condemnation, what does that look like to take it to the cross? Well, it means... You confess your sin to the Lord. You trust in his forgiveness on account of Christ's work for you on the cross. And you say, yeah, but sometimes I feel guilty and condemned and I don't know why. I just live in that state. Take that to the Lord as well. Confess that to the Lord. Lord, I don't know why I feel guilty. I don't know why I'm in a state of condemnation. Help me to see if there's some area I'm blind to. I am trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness and righteousness before you. I have no hope apart from him. Help me to see if this is self-induced guilt 
or guilt that you want me to see because I've sinned, but I'm trusting in Christ nonetheless. That's how you're dealing with your guilt in both cases. Here's how Pastor John Newton shepherded his own heart through this. He writes, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I could be in light of the truth I have access to. I'm not what I hope to be. And then he goes on, but I'm not what I once was. And therefore, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, that segues into a fourth reason why some Christians lack assurance, an unbiblical view of sin and temptation. Or we could put it this way, unbiblical expectations for sin and temptation in the Christian life. We feel the pull of our redeemed flesh. We experience the intensity of temptation to sin, and we wonder, how can I be a Christian and think such thoughts? How can I be a Christian and fall into that kind of sin? And what's the error in our thinking here? We are equating the presence of sin and temptation with a lack of conversion. And the scriptures don't make that connection. As Christians who dwell in this fallen world, we are new creations, but we are not perfected. We live right alongside the remnants of the old self. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You have warring desires within you set opposed to one another. Of course you're going to experience intense temptation. Of course you're going to have ungodly and wicked thoughts. You're going to have to battle as they enter your mind. The presence of temptation and spiritual weakness is not the determining factor. What is the determining factor? Well, let me paraphrase the words of one theologian named William Arnott. He writes this, An unbeliever partakes of his cherished sins against a dreaded God, while a believer takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So you see that distinction there. The distinction is not the unbeliever sins, the believer doesn't sin. The distinction is, what's my relationship with God and with my sin? That's the difference. Do I love sin and dread the things of God? Or do I love God and hate my sin, even though I still fall into it at times? Now, you might be saying, all right, that's too general. I can't tell what side I'm on. (laughs) I still need you to get more specific. Well, I've always found an illustration that uh, Pastor Todd Murray of Grace Emanuel Bible Church uh, has given with regard to this. And uh, he, he says this, if you were to ask someone, and you can just test yourself as you hear this question, if you could have anything you want, At the end of the day, snap your fingers and you have your heart's chief desire. What would it be? If an unbeliever were to answer this question, certainly the specifics would be different, but the category would be be the same. Their answer would basically be this. I want to be able to have whatever I want, to live however I want, and not go to hell. I want to be able to have whatever I I want, live however I want, but not go to hell. 
In other words, I, I want my sin, but I don't want any consequences of my sin. Genuine Christian asks the same question. You could have anything you want, your heart's chief desire. What would it be? Genuine Christian, it would sound something like this. I want Christ, and I never want to sin again. I want Christ, and I never want to sin again. See, the difference isn't that one of them sins and the other one doesn't. It's not that one of them is tempted and the other one isn't tempted. It's that one of them wants to be able to sin with impunity. One of them loves sin, tolerates the things of God, but wants no consequences for their sin. And the other one longs for Christ and longs for the day when they will no longer dishonor him with their unbelief and sin. Another element that might be helpful for us in this category is to consider God's omniscience. We just mentioned it a few minutes ago, but keep in mind that he sees us from first to last. Before you ever profess faith in Christ, he knew exactly how you would think and live as a Christian. He knew your weaknesses. He knew, he knew the thoughts that you would have. He knew your sin. And yet, that infallible knowledge of what you would be like as a Christian did not prevent him from choosing you and saving you. Again, I turn to John Newton because he, he really specializes in ministering to those who struggle with assurance. And here's what he said. You say you are more disposed to cry misery than hallelujah. Why not both? Why not both together? The purpose of God in showing believers the evil of their own hearts is to make them prize more highly the grace and all-sufficiency of Jesus. In this way, they go through life sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. When the Lord answers your prayers, show me my sin, your heart is not worse than it was formerly, just your awareness of it has increased. And this is no small part of growth in grace when you are thirsting after to be truly humbled and emptied and made little in your own eyes. You know, sometimes when, when we're in a season where the Lord is revealing evil in our hearts, we might think, if this has been in my heart all along, there's no way. There's no way the Lord would save me. There's no way the Lord really loves me. And so we kind of run from that evil. We, we try to shun it instead of doing what Newton there advised. Be sorrowful about what you see when it gets exposed. But rejoice that God loves you despite of it. And knowing fully all along it was there, and then you use it as a way to magnify the grace of the cross, the grace of Christ in your life. So some of us lack assurance because of unbiblical or uh, expectations about sin and temptation. A fifth reason why some Christians lack assurance is the misinterpretation of trials and suffering in life. In other words, some Christians become spiritually unstable and unassured because they can't see the hand of a loving God in their suffering and their trials. They say things like this, how is it that God would treat one of his children like this? 
How is it that he could really love me if he makes me suffer like this? And they become like Job's counselors, interpreters of divine providence, which is always a bad idea. They interpret hardship in their life as God's angry at me. His favor is not with me. And they fail to recognize that God brings trials and suffering into our life so that we can actually grow in assurance, not to remove it. Look at Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans 5, 1. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice we have been justified by faith. We have peace. He's not an enemy. He's not angry at us. We have peace with God. Verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God... And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. So notice that. There's evidence right there. You can be justified. You can have peace with God through Christ. And yet you're experiencing tribulations. And that's not evidence that he is not on your side if you are one of his children. Furthermore, notice what tribulation does. Notice the middle of verse 3 knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. A persevering faith, a growth in character, a strengthening hope, the love of God, all of that happening in a context of what? Hardship tribulations. Rather than causing you to doubt, the trials of life are meant to be divine demonstration of God's love and power on your behalf as he provides sufficient grace for you to endure, grows you through those, increases your faith. That's the irony of trials and assurance. They're sent to us in love and mercy and we interpret them as anger and displeasure. So sometimes we lack assurance because of a flawed interpretation of God's providence. We allow our circumstances to teach us what God is like instead of doing what we're supposed to do. God teaches us about our circumstances. That brings us to a sixth reason why we might lack assurance. An uncertain conversion experience. An uncertain conversion experience. Typically true of those who are saved at a young age and didn't have that radical conversion experience because they didn't get old enough to manifest their sin and unbelief as an adult. Maybe they hear other people in the church give these testimonies in baptism, and there was this decisive moment they can point back to. Yeah, it was this day. It was this hour. Here's what happened. My life radically changed. I repented. Here's what it looked like. And it's just so obvious in their life. 
But then you hear a testimony like that, and you're like, I don't have that. <laughs> I can't remember a time when I didn't believe. I can't remember a day, an hour, a week, a month, a year. And so this causes them to doubt because they compare their testimony, which is boring to them, <laughs> with the radical testimonies they hear in older people in the church. And this is understandable as well because the church hasn't been helpful with this because we have taught your generation and many others that the way you get assurance is you look back to that time that you made the decision. Look back to the time when you, you wrote that in the front of your Bible. Here's the day I made a decision. Here it is. And, and we tell you that's how you know you're a believer today. You look back, back to that decision. And it's no wonder that our young people are confused and lacking assurance when they can't look back on that time. Well, thankfully, the Scriptures don't indicate we look to the past to get assurance today. So how do you shepherd your heart if this one applies to you? Well, consider this. If you didn't know your birthday, would you doubt whether you're alive right now? No, none of us remember being born, and none of us are doubting if we're alive right now. The fact that you are alive, you're breathing, you're existing as a physical being, that's the proof you were born at some point in the past. You don't have to know your birthday. That's irrelevant as to whether or not you're alive today. The same is true spiritually. If you're in Christ, yeah, you have a spiritual birth date, but you don't have to know it. You don't have to know it. Sometimes it's, it's very difficult to narrow down. But it's really irrelevant when it comes to assurance because assurance doesn't come by looking into our past and identifying a conversion experience. Assurance, as we're going to see in later sessions, comes by identifying present realities, present evidences of the Spirit of God in our lives. So some people lack assurance because they can't identify exactly when they were converted. They're comparing testimonies, and it results in doubting that they are genuine. A seventh reason why some people lack assurance, dealing with guilt unbiblically. Now, we've kind of touched on this one in a few of the other categories, but let's expand on it here. We could just call this one self-atonement, self-atonement. When we attempt to deal with our own guilt, to cover our own guilt, to make it up to God, instead of going to him, confessing our sin and experiencing the joy of forgiveness. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we can see the first self-atonement project in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to skip ahead to verse 7. This is after the fall, after Adam and Eve fell into sin. Notice what happened in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. That is, they attempted to solve their guilt and shame problem themselves. That's self-atonement. I have sinned, I'm ashamed, I now need a covering, and I am going to manufacture that covering for myself. That's Adam and Eve. It never works today when we do it, 
and it didn't work for them either. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. If you're an underliner, that word hid, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? What's that indicate? Guilt? Shame? Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I... And there's the word again, hid. So I hid. Notice the repetition of the word hid. Uh, That is demonstrating what we do when we are guilty. We will distance ourselves from God and one another when we are guilty. Why is that? When we are in a state of guilt, the last thing we want to be around is a holy God and holy people. Let me illustrate where we go wrong with this in this area. Here is a common but wrong way to approach guilt as a Christian. Let's say we have thoughts enter our mind that we're ashamed of, that we know are sinful, or we commit a sin that, is, that we think is shameful and uncommittable for a Christian, and then we think this to ourselves. I can't think these thoughts and be a Christian. I can't fall in that area and be a Christian. Christians don't do these things and then you know enough, I've got to go to the Lord, I've got to do something. But here's what you say. Lord, I'm so upset. I can't believe I thought such thoughts. I can't believe I fell into that area again. I'm so angry. I'm so sorry. I won't do it again. That's not confession. That's not confession. That's not helpful. Why? You're distancing yourself from your sin in that example. You're not owning it. You're self-atoning by beating yourself up and by pledging future loyalty to the Lord. I I won't do it again. It may seem like you're dealing with it because you're praying. You're taking it to the Lord. But in reality, you haven't really confessed anything in that example. And you say, all right, well, what, what should I do? What should my response be? Well, first, you've got to ask yourself, why are you so shocked? Why are you so surprised at where your thinking or sinful heart led you? Why is it you have a hard time believing you're capable of something like that? Is that not revealing pride? A high view of self, I'm above those things. Others may fall into those things, but not me. I can't believe I did that. That pride needs to be confessed as well as the sin that you're so concerned about. What does confession mean? Saying the same thing, agreeing with God, not distancing yourself from from the sin, not softening it, not using language that's softer, worldly language that talks about biblical actions. I made a mistake. No, that's not confession. That's not what God calls it. So what, what might confession sound like in that scenario? God, this is who I am. That's what's in my heart. I'm guilty. This is where my heart naturally goes. I'm ashamed of it. I can't hide it from you. But I am coming to you because I know that you are the only one that can make me clean. Thank you, God, for loving me despite of these things that you've known are there all along. 
Lord, I rejoice in the work of the cross on your behalf. The very evil I'm so ashamed of and bothered by, Christ took the punishment for me. He bore my guilt. I rejoice in Christ. And I rejoice I'm no longer in bondage to those things. Lord, I now move forward in faith. Romans 6, 11, I consider myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am, I am not going to yield to my sinful appetites. I am going to be controlled by your righteousness, God. But when we don't deal with our guilt like that, when we don't confess and repent like that, we're going to struggle with assurance, appropriately so, because we're not dealing with our guilt in a biblical way. We're self-atoning. An eighth reason why we might lack assurance. We look for it in the wrong places. We look for it in the wrong places. In other words, we know enough to not trust in our Christian responsibilities and activities for salvation. We know enough of that. But sometimes we look to those same things to gain assurance as the proof that we, that we are new in Christ. And the problem is, none of these things, the Scriptures themselves say, yeah, if you do them, that's the proof. You're a child of God. The difficulty is, all of these things are things we're supposed to be doing. Things that we're commanded to do, things that we're expected to do as Christians, but at the same time, none of them sufficiently demonstrate the reality of the rebirth. All right, so I'm just going to give you references here. We're not going to turn to these, but when I list the category... I'm, I'm going to give you a reference to show you how an unconverted person can do it, or it's a reference warning you that you can do it with an, in, with an impure heart or in an ungodly way. All right, so number one, consistent scripture intake and exposure. We might be tempted to get assurance by thinking, I'm always reading my Bible, I'm always listening to the sermons. Well, ref, by way of reference, Ezekiel 33, 30 Stubborn Israel, unbelieving Israel, liked to hear Ezekiel preach expository sermons. But they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't submit themselves to it. James 1, to 25, you can be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. Secondly, being in a position of spiritual influence. So I disciple, I, I teach. That's got to mean something. It's got to mean I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, Matthew 23, verses 1 to 3, speaks of what people doing those very things. They're in positions of influence, and they're the teachers. Who were they? Not everyone at once. I can't hear if you all say it at once. Pharisees, Pharisees. yeah, Pharisees. Jesus goes on to condemn them for their hypocrisy and informs them, when you teach and you make a convert, you make them twice a son of hell as you are. You could see Matthew 23, 15 as well. Thirdly, prayer. Again, something we should do, but in and of itself doesn't indicate we are, in fact, genuine. We looked at Luke 18, 9 to 14, the, the Pharisee who was not justified. He was praying. James 4, verse 3, you can pray, but it can be with wicked motives to spend it on yourself and your own passions. Number four, Serving, serving in Christ's name. We looked at this last night, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. You have lost people standing in front of Jesus on the day of judgment saying, look at all these things we did. Look at all of our acts of service in your name. <clears throat> Five, trying to be a good person and keep the commandments of God. 
Matthew 19, 16 to 22, a man comes to Jesus. He was concerned about living a moral life and keeping the commandments of God. He would attempt to live morally, but Jesus pointed out what the issue was. You won't stop worshiping yourself and money. Six, making a decision for Christ, even a joyful decision for Christ. See the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 18 to 23. Number seven, professing faith in Christ. Doesn't that mean something? When we profess faith, when we say, I, I believe, I confess Christ? Well, just listen to a few verses in 1 John. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 9. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. You can't miss the theme there. A profession of faith, a profession of love or commitment to God is something we should do, but in and of itself doesn't indicate any spiritual reality. Eight. Wanting to escape God's judgment. Wanting to escape God's judgment. Is that a sign of genuine faith? It can be if that fear of judgment leads us to trusting in Christ alone for salvation and worshiping him. But just not wanting to go to hell, that doesn't require the new birth. Acts 8 verse 9 and following, there's an unconverted man wanting to escape God's judgment. Number nine, conviction of sin, feeling guilty when we sin. Is that evidence of genuine conversion, or is that something that unbelievers can experience as well? Well, we have to note, first of all, everyone has a conscience. Christians aren't the only ones who have conscience. That's an eight in everyone. And some unbelievers certainly sear their conscience so that they don't feel anything anymore, but many do respond to it at a general level. Unbelievers can certainly feel guilty when they do something wrong. The first time I lied, I was, not a, I was not, obviously not a Christian, and I felt horrible. I felt very, very guilty. So the mere presence of a guilty feeling can't be evidence of conversion. I present to you Judas, Matthew 27, verse 3 and following. Here, here's what's true of Judas. He changed his mind. He felt remorse. He attempted to return the money. He recognized it was wrong. He said, I have sinned. He rightly referred to Jesus as innocent. Lost. Went away and hanged himself, demonstrating it was all a grand self-atonement project. So these nine areas, there, there's certainly more, but I want to go over those because as we talked about last night, if you ask just the average church member today in the United States, how do you know they're a Christian? They typically list off things like that. And again, as I've said, those are things that we should be doing and should be experiencing, but they're not where we look to, to get assurance. A ninth and final reason, this one's really quick and then we're going to wrap up. A ninth and final reason why we might lack assurance, living in unrepentant sin, living in unrepentant sin, or we could even include a lack of conversion. Maybe we aren't in Christ, and that's why we lack assurance.
This would be the most obvious reason why we would and should lack biblical assurance. The Spirit of God is not going to give you personal confidence you're in Christ if your life is not submitted to Him. By way of reference, you can jot down Romans 8, 1 to 17. Uh, The reason we're not going to go over that right now is because that's for the final session on Sunday morning. We're going to look at this relationship between uh, sinful living, holy living, the Spirit of God, and assurance. Romans 8 is really one of the most helpful chapters on this matter. So we're going to do that on Sunday morning. Now, in our remaining sessions, we're going to attempt to answer the question that is hopefully on all of your minds right now. All right, we've looked at why we might lack assurance. We've looked at where I don't look. (laughs) What are the evidences I don't turn to to get assurance? All right, so where do I look? What are the evidences of the Spirit of God uh, that can give me legitimate assurance that I belong to Him? That's where we're going from now on. So let me pray, and then, Roy, are you coming up afterwards for anything? Okay, so we're closing with prayer, and then small groups. Okay, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for uh, the clarity of your word. And we marvel anew at how how it speaks so precisely and clearly to the various burdens and tendencies that we have. And we ask that you would apply the truths that we've heard this morning to each heart here as you see fit. As we break off into small groups, would you give these students uh, teachable and, and humble hearts and give leaders a heart of wisdom and discernment as they strive to faithfully shepherd them through these very important matters. We thank you for for Christ and his work on, on our behalf. We thank you for the ways that you're already demonstrating your, uh, your care and love for us here at this camp. And, and we commit our time to you and ask that you would continue to put the glory of your grace and riches on display for the good of your people and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.